Hello, everyone. Welcome to VLMD Rounds, a podcast on medical science and tools to optimize your health. I am Dr. Vivian Lowe, and um, thank you for joining me today on the show. Before I begin, I want to give a shout out and say hi to Jean Zhou. So, Jean, thank you very much for listening in on all my episodes. And I know that you actually listen to them multiple times, and that warms my heart. Um, actually, I'm really gratified to hear that some of you uh, are taking notes and listening to each episode several times. Uh, it makes me feel like, you know, maybe some of the information I am providing is helpful to people and at least somewhat interesting. So it kind of encourages me to continue with these different episodes. So Jean, you have not specifically asked me to talk on a topic, but uh, if there's something that you want me to discuss or to present on this podcast, please let me know and I'd be very happy to do that. But today's episode is dedicated to you in any case, because I just want to say hi and thank you so much for listening in. Okay, now about today's episode. I have had some reservations on whether to talk about this topic. And again, it was mostly because I was worried that I might get too technical, but I thought that it was a really important topic, so I'm going to carry on nonetheless, right? I have said many times that I would like to get to some of those big topics in medicine on this podcast, such as atherosclerosis. So, um, unfortunately, we have in the medical world quite a reductionist view on some of these big topics, right? And my hope was to step back a little and present a much bigger view of this disease process. So with atherosclerosis, I think if you asked anyone, um, they're mostly gonna talk about cholesterol and lipoproteins in general. And there are so many other things that are involved in this disease process that never get discussed. So I'd like to start highlighting some of these other factors. And we're gonna start doing that with this episode. I'm not gonna go and do this in a linear sequence and follow each episode up. Um, I'm just gonna start to bring together different pieces that are involved in the atherosclerotic process. And then hopefully after you know several of these episodes, we can step back and see a much bigger view with regards to this disease, uh, a lot more than just cholesterol and lipoproteins. I will get to those topics, but they're not the only things that are important in um, atherosclerosis. So that's why today we are going to be talking about the glycocalyx. Let's go. With the glycocalyx, let's just 
talk about what that word means. So glyco is sugar. Calyx just means husk or shell. So this is a sugar husk or shell or sugar coat. And where is this coat? It's actually around every single living cell. Every cell has a glycocalyx. So it has this coat of sugars that it wears and it's very important for the functioning of the cell. These sugars, these carbohydrates that coat the uh, cell, they are actually the glycosaminoglycans or the GAGs that I talked about when I did that episode on carbohydrates. I don't remember what episode that was, what number that was, but when I talked about carbohydrates, I divided it into food and non-food carbohydrates, right? And the GAGs, the glycosaminoglycans, fall in the non-food category of carbohydrates, right? And they include um, things like heparin sulfate, and heparin, now those two are closely related. I talked about the differences in that carbohydrate episode, um, but nonetheless, there are a lot of similarities between them. Chondroitin sulfate, uh, dematin sulfate, and so forth. All right, so these are all the different carbohydrates that are very important in this sugar coating around every living cell. Now, these sugars, these carbohydrates, can themselves be bound to other substances, other molecules. So we can make glycoconjugates such as glycolipids, for example. So if we take these sugars and they are connected to lipids, then we have a glycolipid. And we find glycolipids in parts of the cell membrane that are called lipid rafts. R-A-F-T-S. Now these lipid rafts are generally very rich in sphingolipids, kind of a, it's a kind of lipid, and in cholesterol, right, and these glycolipids. And they're really, really important for intracellular signaling, and they're also involved in um, immune function. Okay, so we have the glycolipids, but really today I'm going to focus on uh, the gags that are connected to proteins, right, rather than the lipids. So we have two general groups there. We have the proteoglycans and we have the glycoproteins. So one way to think about the differences would be the proteoglycans actually have more of the glycans, they have more of the carbohydrate component than the protein component. So they have a little bit of the protein and then, you know, a lot more of the carbohydrate component. And it's somewhat the opposite with the glycoproteins. So there's more proteins and then some carbohydrate units attached to the proteins, right? So it's mainly a protein, but it's a glycoprotein because we have some you know, carbohydrate units attached to it. And the other one is mainly a glycan, mostly carbohydrate, but it's attached to a core protein. Um, so it's a proteoglycan. So that's one way to think of um, the difference. Now, proteoglycans, they are the major component of the 
extracellular matrix, which is right outside the cell, and they used to be called mucopolysaccharides. And they can form complexes, these proteoglycans, they can form complexes with collagen and other proteoglycans and lots of other things, okay? So if you have proteoglycans, for example, and they are linked to collagen, in essence, what you have is cartilage tissue. And that's really what cartilage is. And it absorbs a lot of water. So it has this kind of a little bit of a spongy effect that you see in cartilage. Okay, these proteoglycans are made inside the cell in the endoplasmic reticulum or the Golgi bodies. And they are very, very long chains of these carbs that are also heavily sulfated which means they have a lot of sulfur groups in them. And these sulfur groups are very important because they add a lot of negative charges to the proteoglycans, okay? And those charges are going to be very important, as you'll see. So these proteoglycans, generally we have the syndicans, S-Y-N-D-E-C-A-N-S, and the glypicans or glypicans, and these are G-L-Y-P-I-C-A-N-S, okay? Now, in the syndicans and the glypicans, the glycosaminoglycans attached to them, the GAGs, the carbohydrate chains attached to them, are mostly heparin sulfate. 50 to 90% would be heparin sulfate. You have some chondroitin sulfate, but it's mostly heparin sulfate, and we're not going to really focus on the chondroitin sulfate today. We're going to focus on the heparin sulfate a little later on. Now, when you look at a proteoglycan structurally, you can think of it as having three parts. There's one part that's sticking outside the, the cell, right? We, after all, we said it was a coating. So that's the part that you see outside the cell. That's uh, where all the heparin sulfate chains are. Then you have that core protein that it's attached to, and that core protein also has a transmembrane domain, and that means it passes through the cell membrane once, okay, so single pass. So that protein passes through that cell membrane, and then it has a fairly short uh, cytosolic domain, so it has uh, a part of it sticking into the cytoplasm of the cell. So you can see it connects the outside, right? There's a piece that's outside, there's a piece that's in the membrane, and then there's a piece that's inside the cell itself. So this is going to be important because now we can have cell signaling, right? We can communicate what's going on outside to the inside of the cell and vice versa as well. So that's why they are important. Now, then I just want to briefly, just for completion, talk about the glycoproteins. These are highly branched short chain carbohydrates that are attached to the protein part. And they are very much involved in cell-to-cell -cell interactions. Some famous glycoproteins that you don't maybe even think of as glycoproteins would be things like TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH, luteinizing hormone, LH, 
and also erythropoietin, which is found in the kidneys, right? So a lot of people don't realize it, but those are glycoproteins. I want to briefly just touch on hyaluronin. So hyaluronin or hyaluronic acid is different from the other gags in the sense that it's linear, so it's not branched, it's linear. It's also non-sulfated. So you don't see sulfur groups on them, which means they're much less negatively charged than something like heparin sulfate, for example, okay? And this hyaluronin is very important in connective tissue. You find it in epithelial tissue and also neuronal tissue. And, um, okay, we talked about how the glycoproteins and the proteoglycans are made inside the cell in the endoplasmic reticulum and or the Golgi body. And then, you know, they then make their way up to the cell surface. and you know, they are formed through a process of glycosylation. And I believe in the earlier episodes, I talked about the difference between glycosylation and glycation. I just don't want you to mix uh, those two up. Remember, glycation is when you form advanced glycation end products that's a non-enzymatic and a spontaneous process whereas uh, glycosylation occurs in the cell through enzymatic processes, okay? So that's the difference. So we have glycosylation and we make these proteoglycans and these glycoproteins. Hyaluronin is different because it's not made inside the cell, it's actually made at the cell surface, at the membrane, and then it's secreted out into the extracellular matrix, right? And there it makes up much of the extracellular matrix and plays a big role in cell migration and proliferation and also in tumor progression. It's um, the major component in synovial fluid in joints and also very important in skin because it helps in uh, wound healing and repairing of tissue, okay? So we talked about the glycocalyx as the sugar coating around every cell. Now, if we take cells and we line them up in a row and we make, you know, a row of cells, then if we looked at one surface of the cell, it would see a lining of this glycocalyx as well, right? So if you think of blood vessels, we have the blood vessel with the hollow part in the middle, that's the lumen, L-U-M-E-N, and blood flows through the lumen, okay? But right next, to the, 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 the cells lining the lumen are the endothelial cells, E-N-D-O-T-H-E-L-I-A-L, these endothelial cells. Now, remember again, every cell has a glycocalyx, so no different here the endothelial cells will have this glycocalyx. And in the blood vessel now, if you look through it like a tube, then you're going to see this glycocalyx really lining the lumen because the cells are lining the lumen. And then you have this glycocalyx sticking out of the cells. So it looks like this, almost like a brush border inside the lumen, okay, of the, of the blood vessel. Now, Many people have described it as a sort of a carbohydrate forest, right? So 
imagining a tiny forest of these proteins with their carbohydrate chains like trees, right? Making a little forest layer uh, lining the lumen of the blood vessel. And actually, I prefer to think of it as moss. So if you've looked at moss, right? Moss is just sort of wet and a little bit slimy, very smooth, right? And when you see the water kind of rushing over uh, moss on a stone, right? You can see the little ferny bits of the moss kind of wave in the water. So I think moss would be a better, would give you maybe a better graphic picture of this glycocalyx. It's not green though, okay? I love the green of moss, but this is not green. But you have this sort of slimy, um, very wet moss that is lining the inside of the blood vessel and it is very highly absorbent of water so it absorbs a lot of water to it and as a result it forms this kind of a gel-like consistency so again if you have kind of played with moss in the water and you kind of press it it's kind of a little spongy and has a little bounce to it right and this is the same because it's like a gel that lines um, the endothelium. And we can consider it even an organelle, okay? So we call this the endothelial glycocalyx. If you've ever been to an amusement park and driven in those bumper cars, right? Uh, it's kind of fun, you go around bumping into other people. But around the ring where the bumper cars are, there is this big um, bumper or barrier, right? So that if you bump into the fencing or this, this um, perimeter of the ring, then you don't damage the bumper car, you don't hurt yourself, you just kind of bounce off it and then you can go off and go hit someone else, right? So you think of this bumper that's lining this ring in the bumper car arena in the amusement park, you could think of the endothelial glycocalyx that way. And the reason for it is because I told you, it's a, first of all, it's a physical barrier. It's right there, like this moss um, lining the blood vessel. Okay, and it has this gel-like consistency and it causes, you know, sterically, so it just doesn't allow uh, big particles, right, to pass through easily. The other thing I mentioned was that these gags in them, many of them have a lot of sulfur in them, and so they carry a lot of negative charge. And so the glycocalyx really is quite negatively charged. And as a result, it keeps a lot of substances that are flowing in the blood from entering and being close to the endothelial cell, okay? Because they're kind of like this little fuzz that protects the endothelial cell through the, you know, uh, electrostatic charges. And when you actually um, destroy the glycocalyx, so if we took 
away a little piece of the moss, if we rubbed away some of the moss, then you have a degraded glycocalyx. And the result of that would be that you're going to expose the endothelial cells, right? Without the fuzz now, without the moss. And sticking out of those endothelial cells are these proteins that are called adhesion molecules, okay? And they're sort of sticky molecules. And you can have platelets and you can have white blood cells now rolling along, right? And when they hit those sticky bits, they're likely to stick to that part of the blood vessel, right? And then if they're immune cells, we can start to have an immune reaction. If they're platelets, we can also start to see maybe an aggregation of platelets and we start to form a clot. Also, the glycocalyx itself binds a lot of proteins. Among them, for example, antithrombin-3. So antithrombin-3 inhibits clotting. So it's very useful that way. Because, you know, you have a blood vessel and you have all these blood cells flowing through. You don't want clotting. You want free pass of the blood, right? So that antithrombin-3 that is in the glycocalyx, it's helpful because it inhibits clotting. If you degrade the glycocalyx, right, and you damage it, then you lose the antithrombin-3 effect, you expose the adhesion molecules, and now platelets and immune cells can stick and we can start to have an immune response there, an inflammatory response there. And there are other proteins like lipoprotein lipase, growth factors such as VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor, fibroplast uh, growth factor, uh, that actually are found in the glycocalyx. Also, extracellular superoxide dismutase. This is an enzyme that kind of neutralizes some of those reactive oxygen species that we find when we have a lot of oxidative stress. I've talked about reactive oxygen species, but probably do a whole episode on redox uh, reactions at some point. But nonetheless, you have this enzyme superoxide dismutase, and that can help neutralize some of the reactive oxygen species. So it's useful to have around, right? And it's actually found bound in the glycocalyx. Now, some people thought that the glycocalyx might also pre um, help prevent vascular permeability, that somehow it prevented the cells from actually kind of going in and, and substances in the blood from going inside into the endothelial lining and further into the blood vessel wall. But it turns out really uh, permeability is um, controlled by these proteins, the adherins and the cadherins. Those are mainly involved in making sure that um, there's a, a firm endothelial barrier and nothing can go through that. However, these GAGs, these glycosaminoglycans, they are tethered to the actin cytoskeleton of the cell. So within the cell, you have a skeleton and that helps determine the shape and the morphology of the cell. And in some cells, it will help in, in 
phagocytosis and moving. I'll probably maybe do an episode on that at some point. So many things to talk about, right? So we have this interior scaffolding that is made up of actin proteins. We call that the actin cytoskeleton. And these GAGs, these glycosaminoglycans, are actually connected to the cytoskeleton, the interior of the cell. So that means again that we have direct connection between the outside and the inside and whatever is going on in the outside can be communicated to the inside. And in fact, these gags are also connected to different organelles in the cell. So they're connected to the nucleus, for example, right? And lysosomes and so forth. And so they are intimately involved with what is going on in the cell. Now, this is particularly important. This con connection is particularly important with mechanotransduction. Okay. What this means is that the cell can detect the force of the blood, the sheer force of the blood flowing through the blood vessel through this glycocalyx. Right. The analogy, again, that people use when they talk about that forest analogy of the glycocalyx being like this little forest uh, lining around the inside of the blood vessel is that when you have the wind blow through the trees, right, there's this ripple effect. And this ripple effect, whatever it's connected to, the tree is connected to, right, can sense this ripple effect. I still like my moss analogy because you can see that with moss as the water is flowing over it, right? It kind of does this wavy thing. And you can imagine if the end of the cell, um, if the end of the moss is connected to the inside of the cell, then really that inside can sense the flow of the water, or in this case, the blood in the blood vessel. All right, so that's how you can think of, a, of it. Now, the faster the flow of the blood, right, then what's gonna happen? You're going to have increased force, right? And this is going to signal the endothelial cells, right, to make nitric oxide. So nitric oxide, I'll probably do an episode on that. Nitric oxide is basically made through an enzyme called ENOS, or endothelial nitric oxide synthase in the endothelial cell, right? But how does the cell know to make nitric oxide? Well, it's through the glycocalyx um, really kind of communicating the shear force of the blood flow to the inside of the cell, right? To the, the endothelial cell itself. And when it realizes, oh, its flow is pretty fast, we're gonna make more nitric oxide. And what nitric oxide will do is dilate the blood vessel, right? And so we can slow the flow of blood and decrease the shear force. So this is very important in regulating the health of the blood vessel. And if you lose the glycocalyx, you damage the glycocalyx, then essentially what you're doing is you're not allowing the endothelial cells to regulate the tone of the blood vessels, right? And so now you lose that ability to vasodilate and relax the blood vessel. Okay, 
So we talked about the endothelial glycocalyx in general. Now I just want to focus a bit on specific um, gags and proteoglycans that are found in the glycocalyx because I just want to illustrate for you how important they are in cell function, okay, and also in disease, um, you know, uh, regulation. One other thing I just want to add is with the glycocalyx, these proteoglycans and the glycoproteins, um, the different gags that are on these um, proteins in the glycocalyx, they actually vary very greatly depending on the tissue, depending on the context. So the glycocalyx, very important to know this, it is not static. It is very dynamic. It's constantly being synthesized and shed, right? And modified in various ways. So for example, in certain parts of the body, the glycocalyx is heavily sulfated, like in the liver, we'll see in a bit, and then less so in other parts of the body, right? It may be thicker in certain uh, capillary walls and certain parts of the capillary, right? And it may be thinner at other points in other blood vessels or even in the same blood vessel. So it's highly dynamic and it's responding to the environment. So depending on, let's say, the flow of blood in a capillary, then um, you may have along one part of the capillary a thicker glycocalyx and then along another part a thinner glycocalyx. You may even have along the same part of the glycocalyx on one side of the blood vessel a thicker glycocalyx and a thinner one on the opposite side, directly opposite. Okay, So it's highly dynamic and you should not think of it as the static uniform um, you know, organelle. It's, it's really very context and tissue specific. So I want to now talk about these proteoglycans um, and they are known as heparin sulfate proteoglycans, again, because they are very rich in heparin sulfate uh, glycosaminoglycans or GAGs, okay? So Let's just take a look now at syndicon 1, S-Y-N-D-E-C-A-N 1, the number 1. Now, okay, I probably should have talked about lipoproteins before I talked about the glycocalyx. It's really hard to decide what to talk about because, you know, at some point we'll get to all of them, all right? But we know that, you know, we eat for example, triacyl, uh, we eat fats, and then these triacylglycerides are taken up by these carriers that are called lipoproteins in the intestines, and they circulate in lymph and eventually connect to the bloodstream. And they bring not only these fats, the triacylglycerols, but also cholesterol and um, the fat-soluble vitamins and phospholipids, for example, uh, two different parts of the body. The liver also makes some of these um, triacylglycerol-rich lipoproteins, okay? And these are, you know, when you have increased triacylglycerols 
and increase uh, these very low density lipoproteins which carry those triacylglycerols around, then you're at an increased risk for atherosclerosis. Okay, well, people started to notice that in mice that were deficient in silicon one, they seem to accumulate these triacylglycerols or triglycerides more in the blood. Okay, and people started asking, well, what's going on here? So it turns out that syndicin 1 is very rich. It's a proteoglycan full of heparin sulfate. It's very rich in the microvilli of hepatocyte basal membranes uh, facing the space of DSA. So the space of DSA is a place in the liver where a lot of these lipoproteins that are carrying all these fats around, they are taken up by the liver. Okay, so we're kind of taking them back into the liver. So um, we notice that these areas in the liver, these microvilli in the space of DC, have a lot of the um, silicon one. And it turns out that this is because it's really the primary hepatocyte um, sort of proteoglycan um, receptor for these you know, triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, okay? So we traditionally thought that the lipoproteins that were carrying these triglycerides were mostly cleared by the LDL receptor. So you have this LDL receptor sitting in those liver cells and they would take in the LDL, but they, we thought maybe they took in these um, very... These, these high triglyceride lipoproteins, the very low-density lipoproteins as well. And actually, it turns out that the primary receptor would be syndicin 1. It's a heparin sulfate proteoglycan, and it is a major contributor to clearance of triacylglycerol-rich lipoproteins in the liver. In particular, they tend to take in the smaller VLDLs, whereas the LDL receptor tends to take the larger of those uh, triglyceride-rich lipoproteins. And these silicon one receptors are also, um, they tend to preferentially clear the uh, particles, the lipoprotein particles that are enriched with the apolipoprotein E and A5, okay? Specific types of these uh, apolipoproteins that are found in the lipoproteins. You know, I know it's a bit technical, sorry. I will do an episode on lipoproteins. I just put this here, you can tag it, and when we do the episode on lipoproteins, you can come back and then you'll probably understand it better, okay? But this uh, syndicate one turns out to be really important in clearing the VLDL, right? We used to think that it was the LDL receptor maybe that did that, and no, it's actually syndicin 1. So it's part of the glycocalyx that is helping the liver clear uh, the VLDL. Okay, and we see this also in human fibroblasts, right? This is an article from Arteriosclerosis, Thrombosis, and Vascular Biology uh, by Foley et al. from 2013. And the thinking at the time was, again, these um, LDL receptors and 
LDL receptor related protein, uh, which is called LRP1, that they were the major uh, receptors in the liver to take up the VLDL, the very low density lipoproteins that contain or that carry a lot of the triglycerides. But it turns out that actually the heparin sulfate proteoglycans in the glycocalyx are very important and uh, they take in these VLDLs. So in vivo, in mice, what they did was they blocked the LDL receptor and they noticed that the clearance of these VLDLs was decreased by 45%. So yeah, okay, the LDL receptor is important, but it didn't actually you know, decrease the clearance 100%. It was just decreased by 45% when they blocked the LDL um, receptor. When they blocked LRP1, then the clearance was decreased by 55%. Okay, all right. But when they blocked both, they blocked LDL receptor and LRP1, the clearance was only decreased marginally more. It went down by 60%. So clearance was just in total um, cleared, you know, decreased by 60%. So something else was involved here, and it turns out that it is the um, heparin sulfate proteoglycans that are actually taking in the VLDL. Okay. Furthermore, in this, uh, we're going to talk, that was Syndicon 1. We're going to talk about Syndicon 4. This is another uh, proteoglycan in the Syndicon family. Syndicon 4, just like most of the proteoglycans, they're uh, important in acute tissue repair, cell-to-cell interaction, cell migration and proliferation, matrix remodeling. Okay, all the proteoglycans do that. Anyway, um, when they took vascular smooth muscle cells from blood vessel walls and they treated them with oxidized fatty acids, the omega-6 fatty acids that were now rancid or oxidized, then these oxidized fatty acids actually upregulated the formation of syndicin 4. Okay, and what this, well, the process by which this happened was actually um, by the generation of hydrogen peroxide and activation of um, oxidative stress, okay? So we have reactive oxygen species forming uh, when you have the presence of these oxidized fats. And then uh, you make more syndicin 4. You also shed more of the syndicin 4. You make more and you shed more of uh, the syndicin 4. And they noted that oxidized LDLs, these lipoproteins that were oxidized, um, actually decrease the thickness of the endothelial glycocalyx. So they actually damage the glycocalyx and you had a lot of this shedding of the syndicin 4. And they increase platelet endothelial cell adhesion. Okay, again, because we expose now the cell surface and now we can have stickiness of platelets and other um, immune cells to that layer. And actually, if you give 
superoxide dismutase or catalase. These are enzymes that neutralize those reactive oxygen species. You can prevent the stickiness from happening, um, even with the degradation of the glycocalyx. So we know this is what happens when you degrade the glycocalyx is that you form a lot of these reactive oxygen species and you set up an inflammatory environment, okay? Now, so the silicon 4 is going to be a result of the formation of these oxidized LDLs. We also have these group of enzymes sorry for the technical names, but this, these are the group 5 PLA2 enzymes. Don't worry about it. Uh, but they actually can modify LDL, okay? So you have LDL floating around and you have this group 5 secretory PLA2 enzymes and they can change the LDL in the presence of the glycocalyx. And once you modify the LDL, then you're going to open up in the LDL itself, these lipoprotein particles, these binding sites that cause the LDL itself to bind to the glycocalyx. Okay, so now we have the modified LDLs bound in the glycocalyx. We have syndicum 4 increase, right? And macrophages, my favorite immune cells, come along and now they can gobble up the LDLs, the oxidized LDLs, because when you have a lot of silicon 4, it also decreases cell motility. So we have these immune cells and they don't move around very much. They stay in that area. And plus you have parts of the endothelial surface that's exposed. And so we have all those sticky substances in there, right? So all these factors help to keep that immune cell in that area to chomp down on the modified or oxidized LDL. So you can see there's a close relationship between the glycocalyx and immune cell reaction and um, how they impact the lipoproteins that are floating around in the blood. Okay, so here's another one that uh, I want to bring to your attention again to highlight the importance of the glycocalyx to this, you know, process of atherosclerosis and to the circulation of lipoproteins in our blood. So we have these lipoproteins here. I'm going to just talk about the LDL or the low density lipoproteins. And they carry mostly cholesterol, which is why you hear a lot about them in the medical world, okay? Now, what happens is they're floating around in the bloodstream, and when they get back to the liver, right, the liver cells have LDL receptors, okay? And these LDL receptors can now take the uh, LDLs from the plasma, right? They take that that LDL from the plasma and bring it back into the cell. So we remove it from the plasma and as a result, your circulating blood levels of LDL would drop, right? And normally what would happen then is that the LDL receptor, once it's brought the LDL into the cell, it can be recycled and it can go back up to the cell surface where it's ready to work again, taking the next LDL that comes along, 
okay? Now, we have something called PCSK9, proprotein convertase subtilisin connexin type 9, which is why we call it PCSK9, because if we were to use the full name, this episode would probably last a few more hours. It's quite a mouthful, right? So we'll just call it PCSK9, which is a protein. The thing about PCSK9 that's really important is that it actually binds to the LDL receptor. Okay, remember the receptor sitting on the liver cell waiting for the next LDL to come along so it can take the LDL into the cell and then resurface at the um, cell membrane to take the next LDL in. Well, the PCSK9 binds to the receptor and then it causes the degradation of the LDL receptor, which is a protein, in a lysosome, right? So we're going to break that down. And once we break down the receptor, no more recycling because you've broken it down, right? So now you have a decrease of receptors on the liver cell surface. And so we're not taking in the LDL. And as a result, you have higher levels of circulating LDLs. This is guaranteed to freak out your healthcare provider, right? So much so that, you know, um, they use statins to try to decrease your LDL levels, but that wasn't good enough. So they decided that they were going to make these um, special PCSK9 inhibitors. And these are going to bind to the PCSK9 so that the PCSK9 cannot bind to the LDL receptor and you know, promote the degradation of that receptor, right? So if you bind to the PCSK9 and you put it out of service, then you leave the LDL receptor alone and it can take in the LDL and recycle, okay? So that's the whole idea between the PCSK9 inhibitors. So people have known about the PCSK9 for a long time, but they didn't really know how it worked. And it turns out, that actually first the PCSK9 is bound to liver um, heparin-sulfate proteoglycans, the glycocalyx uh, gags, okay? Proteoglycans in the glycocalyx, right? So they bind first to these proteoglycans in the liver and then these proteoglycans now present the PCSK9 to the LDL receptor. And it's then that the PCSK9 can form a complex with the LDL receptor and then bring it into the lysosome to degrade the LDL receptor. Okay, so we actually need the binding of these proteoglycans, mostly the heparin sulfate that's on the proteoglycans, also a little bit of the core protein, which is perlecan, P-E-R-L-E-C-A-N, for those of you who want the notes on that, okay? So it's very specific to the liver because those heparin sulfate chains in the liver are much more highly sulfated than in other tissue, okay? That's what makes it specific to the liver. Remember earlier I told you that the glycocalyx is dynamic and very different depending on what tissue we're in. Okay, so it turns out in the liver, it's way more 
um, heavily sulfated, so a lot more negative charges, and it can bind to PCSK as a result of that, uh, and then present it to the LDL receptor to form the complex. Okay, so that was from a paper that was published in Nature Communications by Gustafsson et al. Right, and you know, again, it it highlights how important these uh, proteoglycans are, and how important these uh, the glycocalyx is, right, in different parts of your body. It turns out also the authors note that uh, the malaria parasite is called Plasmodium, and um, that's how the malaria parasite and the dengue virus and the hepatitis C virus also use these proteoglycans to infect the body. So with malaria, for example, uh, you get bitten by the Anopheles mosquito and now the parasite binds to the um, glycocalyx, the heparin sulfate proteoglycans in the skin. Now in the skin, again, there's not they're not as sulfated, okay? So low sulfation on the skin and also on the endothelial surface. So they get in the skin and endothelial surface and then when they get to the liver where it's highly sulfated, right? Now that's how they invade the liver cells, okay? Because again, the, the uh, quality of the glycocalyx is different in the liver, okay? So I thought that was interesting with regards to those viruses and parasites. Okay, so that was the PCSK9, and I said that uh, it was really the heparin sulfate chains and also the core protein of perlican that were involved. So with perlican, okay, perlican uh, is found, that core protein is found uh, in high levels in the arterial wall and also the hepatic space of DSA again. Okay, we find a lot of this perlican there and we can change the core protein itself of perlican and we can also change the heparin sulfate metabolism and change the side chains and actually oxidize LDL, do both. They change the core protein synthesis and they also increase degradation of the heparin sulfate chains and as a result, uh, we're going to have compromise to the endothelium because perlican actually binds a lot of antithrombin-3, which, as I said earlier, inhibits clotting, right? So now if we make the perlican less effective, it doesn't bind the antithrombin-3, then we're going to have, what, increased stickiness and increased um, clotting happen, okay? So you can see that the endothelial glycocalyx is really, really important in atherosclerosis. You hardly hear people talk about it. Or if they do, they go, and the glycocalyx, and endothelial dysfunction, and they kind of, it's just kind of floating in there. But they are specifically involved in, you know, taking in and interacting with these lipoproteins, for example, right? And if you have modified lipoproteins, that can have a different effect on those cells. So that was the glycocalyx in the endothelial lining. Now we can also have the glycocalyx 
in individual cells, immune cells, and also cancer cells. So the glycocalyx is important in cancer cells, for example, because cancer cells can produce a glycocalyx that's full of this mucin, right? And as a result, it doesn't allow the immune cells to gobble them up, attack it and gobble it up and get rid of it, okay? Similarly, if we look at macrophages, again, my favorite cell, right? Macrophages, they are able to, um, you know, kind of eat up of phagocytose cancer cells or pathogens based on these binding sites that they can recognize and bind to on those cells, right? But they may have a glycocalyx that kind of blocks them from binding to those binding sites on the target cells, right? Or they may have cells, those viruses and the um, cancer cells have a glycocalyx that blocks those binding sites and then now the macrophages cannot uh, actually recognize them, right? So they, their glycocalyx can physically block um, them from eating other cells or also the electrostatic charges on the glycocalyx can impair their phagocytosis of these cells. So you can see that this is important when we're talking about immune defense in the body and also very important when uh, we talk about cancer cells. And that's one strategy that the cancer cells have of evading our immune system. Okay, so by now you should realize that it's really important to preserve your glycocalyx, right? You don't want destruction of the glycocalyx. So what are some things that will degrade or destroy your glycocalyx? So glycocalyx is destroyed by ischemia uh, reperfusion injury. So this is when you have reduced blood flow to an area and then after a while you suddenly uh, have blood flow again to that uh, tissue. Okay, we call that ischemia, no blood flow, reperfusion, so now blood flow again, injury. Okay, so we have a period where there's no blood flow and then we suddenly have blood flow again and that can cause a lot of reactive oxygen species to form a lot of oxidative stress and also just the flow of blood again, the sheer force of the blood can be damaging to the glycocalyx. So we want to avoid ischemia reperfusion uh, injury. And if you have a patient that has this, that like they had a heart attack or something, and now you know uh, you unblock the vessel, okay? So first there was no blood flow there, now you unblock the vessel and now there's blood flow again. So that would be an example of ischemia reperfusion injury, right? So you have those patients and you want to decrease the uh, breakdown of the glycocalyx, well, it's useful to give them steroids, hydrocortisone, and also vitamin C, because I told you that much of this is due to the formation of uh, reactive oxygen species as a result of oxidative stress. So if we give an antioxidant like vitamin C, then we can rescue the tissue from this ischemia reperfusion injury. So this kind of made me think of, I don't know if any of you have heard of the Mavic 
protocol. So this was several years ago. And um, I think it was named after the physician who used this protocol, Mavic. And he started giving people in the ICU, especially those with ARDS, lung injuries and so forth, and uh, sepsis, he started giving them high-dose intravenous vitamin C. And it seemed to have, in some of his case studies, uh, really survival benefit and really helped uh, those patients recover faster. And there were some dramatic case reports where, you know, you'd have this white out lungs and then after two days, the lungs, which is unheard of with ARDS, the lungs are completely clear and the patient's extubated and so forth. So a lot of places started trying to use this protocol, the Mavic protocol. And I believe that the studies were quite disappointing because they found no survival benefit and didn't seem to change anything or help. Now, um, one of the things that causes damage to the glycocalyx is if you actually flood the patients with fluids, IV fluids. Okay, so when we do resuscitation and when you have an ICU patient, generally, uh, most times people like to give a lot of IV fluids. And what we know now is that when you do that, that you stand the risk of actually damaging the glycocalyx more when you overhydrate the patient. So I've been thinking about this because with ischemia reperfusion injury, you give vitamin C and hydrocortisone and it really helps decrease the destruction of the glycocalyx. But if a patient's in the ICU, you give the vitamin C, but you're also giving tons of fluid, right? And you're damaging the glycocalyx that way, then you'll be taking away any of the beneficial effects of the antioxidant. So if there's anyone out there who's interested in this, you know, maybe retry the Mavic protocol and watch the hydration okay, rather than flood the patient with fluids? What if we controlled for hydration and we stopped damaging the glycocalyx that way? Would we see a beneficial effect with hydrocortisone and vitamin C? The actual Mavic protocol also included thiamine, I believe, but, you know, here, vitamin C and hydrocortisone. I digress, but it made me think a lot about that protocol because it would be interesting to try it out without, oh, and control for the fluid status as well and the resuscitation with fluids on that patient, all right? So obviously, I just told you, ischemia reperfusion can damage the glycocalyx and also overhydration, right? Especially IV resuscitation with fluids. Um, and hyperglycemia, yes, our friend, high blood sugar, especially acute cases. You again, increase reactive oxygen species, right? You have high um, blood sugar there, and you also have, you know, sorbitol formation and fructose, you know, that whole thing, the polyol pathway. A lot of reactive oxygen species, and as a result, you damage the glycocalyx. So, you know, I always tell my patients that when you eat sugar, and I mentioned this in probably the insulin episode, that um, the sugar in your blood vessels, it's just like having 
uh, razor blades in the blood vessel. And my patients are like, oh, you're so dramatic. Huh? It's a little extreme. And no, it's really like razor blades scraping off and tearing off that glycocalyx. I wasn't joking. Why do people think I joke about these things? Right? So I actually think that razor blades analogy is spot on. Because when you have high blood sugar, it's like having razor blades floating in the bloodstream. My patients are well trained. You know, you show them any um, sugary confectionery and they go, razor blades. And I'm like, got that right. Okay, so hyperglycemia will degrade and destroy the glycocalyx. Obviously, hypoxia, low oxygen. Remember what causes hypoxia to the brain and the cerebral blood flow and the endothelial dysfunction in the brain. Look at the shrunken brain syndrome episode. Yeah, there we go, right? Abnormal shear stress to the blood vessel, so high blood pressure, for example, sepsis and infection, oxidized LDLs. We just talked about it, right? And tumor necrosis factor alpha. So, you know, some of these inflammatory cytokines can destroy the glycocalyx. So guess what? Don't do any of those, <laughs> right? That's the goal. All right, time for our wrap up. So we talked about the sugar coating around all cells and they are made up of these gags or glycosaminoglycans and different gag conjugates. So they can be conjugated to lipids, in which case they're called glycolipids, or they're attached to proteins. And in that case, they're either proteoglycans or uh, glycoproteins, right? And then with the proteoglycans, I talked about their structural domains, they have one part that sticks outside the cell, they have a transmembrane region, and then they have an uh, intracellular cytosolic region. So this means that they can be involved in cell signaling. And we talked about um, how these chains, especially uh, with the proteoglycans, we were focused on the heparin sulfate gags that were attached to them. And then we talked about the glycocalyx in the endothelial lining, what we call the endothelial glycocalyx. It um, actually acts as a barrier and prevents, um, you know, large substances from being in contact with the endothelial cell surface through just the physical barrier, but also through electrostatic charges because it's very negatively charged. Right. And it also contains a lot of proteins that are involved in keeping the blood vessel healthy, such as antithrombin-3, because it helps inhibit clotting. Right Now, um, when you degrade the glycocalyx, you expose the sticky molecules on the cell surface of the endothelial cell that can then stick to immune cells that are passing by and also to platelets and so forth and start to initiate an inflammatory reaction. Also, because there's a connection between the outside and the inside via this glycocalyx, so we have the glycocalyx attached to the 
cytoskeleton of the cell, the actin cytoskeleton, and as a result, it is involved in mechanotransduction of the blood flow in the blood vessel. And when it senses high flow, it basically signals the cell to make some nitric oxide via endothelial nitric oxide synthase. And then we vasodilate the blood vessel to decrease the blood flow um, in the blood vessel. So it's very, very important in regulation of the tone of the blood vessel. And then we dived into some specific proteoglycans. We looked at syndicin 1 and how it's the primary hepatocyte uh, heparin sulfate proteoglycan that's involved in um, taking in the VLDLs, uh, not just in the hepatocytes, but also in fibroblasts as well. We looked at syndicin 4 and how oxidized LDLs can increase uh, the formation of syndicin 4, and this now causes um, thinning of the endothelial glycocalyx, but it also helps the macrophages kind of chomp down, stay in that area and chomp down on those oxidized LDLs, right? And, you know, modified LDLs um, will actually bind better to the glycocalyx. And again, that's when um, the immune cells, the macrophages can come and um, try to chomp them up, try to phagocytose them, right? We also looked at these heparin sulfate proteoglycans and the PCSK9. PCSK9 actually binds to the LDR, LDL receptor on liver cells and then takes that LDL receptor into lysosomes, degrades it so it can't recycle. And when that happens, we don't have a lot of the LDL receptor on the surface of the liver cells. And so we have a lot of circulating LDLs in the bloodstream because we can't take it into the liver, right? And it turns out that uh, heparin sulfate and perlican, which is a heparin sulfate proteoglycan, they are involved in actually binding to the PCSK9 and presenting that to the LDL receptor. And now PCSK9 can form a complex with the LDL receptor and help degrade it that way, okay? So if you inhibit those proteoglycans, you actually could inhibit PCSK9. That's one way to inhibit PCSK9. All right, so we also um, talked about the things that destroy your glycocalyx, and they would be ischemia reperfusion injury, um, you know, kind of over-exuberant fluid resuscitation, hyperglycemia, hypoxia, abnormal shear stress, high blood pressure in the blood vessels, sepsis, infection, oxidized LDLs, and inflammatory cytokines such as tumor necrosis factor alpha. So the key to keeping a healthy glycocalyx is, of course, to decrease oxidative stress, right? So avoid the high sugar uh, situations. Try to avoid ischemia reperfusion injury, um, hypoxic, uh, you know, situations. So for example, if you have sleep apnea, 
get that CPAP. You don't want hypoxia because that will degrade and destroy your glycocalyx, right? So anything that decreases oxygen to your tissues is going to be, uh, you know, bad for your glycocalyx. And, you know, you don't want to consume a lot of those inflammatory uh, omega-6s. We talked about that in the fats episode because, you know, uh, those, those oxidized fatty acids can also damage and destroy the glycocalyx. So we want to reduce overall inflammation so that we keep the glycocalyx nice and healthy. Okay, so that was it for this episode. I got through that. I hope it was not too technical, folks. Um, I, you know, I, like I said, I will be talking about lipoproteins and, and cholesterol in greater detail in further episodes. So this might then make a little bit more sense. Um, sometimes I, you just don't know which piece to present first. So, okay, we did the glycocalyx check. So we'll move on. And again, if there are other topics you want to hear about, just write to me, let me know, and I'll get to them. Okay? So for now, signing out from VLMD Rounds, I'm Dr. Vivian Lowe, and I sing the body electric. Thanks for listening. Bye.